Hey everybody, my name is Tyler Norwood and you're listening to The Deal Podcast. Some of the best tips, tricks, and insights from some of the world's best investors. On today's episode, we have Zach Coleus, who is the founder and still only employee of Coleus Capital. Zach is a really straight shoot kind of guy. Uh, we actually disagree about a couple of things on this uh, episode, but I love it. I love how opinionated he is. I love how he says exactly how he feels. Coleus Capital is a firm that invests mostly in B2B SaaS, but Zach and I talk about the gambit across the board. Lots of really great insights for future investors as well as founders. Without further ado, this is Zach Coleus on the deal. All right. Hey, Zach. It's great to have you here today. Thanks a lot for uh, coming in. Oh, my pleasure. Especially because exactly. it's like we don't even have to come in anymore. We just fire it up and boom, <laughs> here we are. Yeah, exactly. Or should I say thanks a lot for sitting where you've probably been sitting all day and connecting to me on the internet. <laughs> for for years and years now, I've just been sitting at this kitchen table, just like, <laughs> just hanging out in my spot. <laughs> so Zach, you are the founder, general partner of Coleus Capital, um, after your namesake. Uh, just to get us kicked off and a little bit of context, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the firm? Yeah, so started. Uh, I like to I like to say that I'm a washed up entrepreneur, but I washed up on the beach. That is being a douchebag VC, and I'm not leaving because <laughs> the beer is cold, and this life is much much easier than working for a living. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we sold the last company in 2015, and um, stumbled into this job. Uh, the whole backstory there, but stumbled into this job, and I've been doing it ever since. Um, now it's uh, uh, largely just me. Don't even have an EA. So the we is me. Um, nice. But uh, the royal we. Um, yeah, the royal we. Uh, we invest uh, almost exclusively in B2B software. Uh, every now and then, founders who I've known for like a decade will drag me into other random stuff, and um, that will be awesome. And usually it works out really well. But yeah. unless I've known the founder for a long time, it's it's predominantly B2B software. Checks are anywhere from two to three hundred on the low end to five million um, for what I like lead or get involved in a big Series A, um, and then later stage stuff I'll invest through the life cycle of business so I can go as big as ten million into like a later stage opportunity. Um, current uh, fund I'm operating off of is about a hundred million of undeployed capital that I have to somehow put to work, and then um, about that much in the ground so far. So um, nice. So. I think the next obvious question for people who are listening is how, how did you, how did you get to where you are? Right. So, you know, the sort of joke, jokes aside of being the, the douchebag VC, you're one guy by himself, you've deployed a hundred million dollars in the market. You have another hundred million dollars ready to go. Like, can you tell us a little bit about the story of how, how you arrived here? Yeah. So, um, uh, I like to say I've never had a real job and I'm hoping that I can die never having had a real job. But so <laughs> I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I uh, started my first sort of thing when I was a kid, 16, and then started a nonprofit in college that was a tech sort of company in a way. Um, we built the first online voter registration and absentee ballot system for helping college students get involved in the electoral system back when that was a new thing. And then um, the first venture funding company we started um, in 2005, uh, my sister and I started one of the very first DSPs. So the trade desk, now a you know, multi 
billion dollar tech, 10 billions, tens of billions of dollar business uh, was one of our direct competitors. Um, they, we got, we got our butt kicked there, but um, there's a crazy 10 year journey, um, raised a bunch of VC money and we grew it up to about 30 million in revenue and then made the mistake of, we had partnered with Facebook and then we showed them how to make their ad system work. And there's a whole, actually Antonio wrote the great book chaos monkeys about that whole experience. And like, we played a role yeah. in that, um, that, that, that crazy world in in thirteen to to fifteen, uh, we made that mistake of um, that partnership, and they they were like they had a big internal meeting, and the the question was, do we continue to partner with these great best in class firms, or do we bring it in house and do it ourselves? And they said we're going to do it ourselves. So I have a scar from here to here from Facebook gutting us, um, and uh, we ended up, ended up having to sell that business in a very painful fire sale process in fifteen. Um, so I, I came into sort of the venture community uh, very much a wash up founder. I mean, yeah, know, 20 years of, of entrepreneurial shit, uh, many lessons, um, the beatings. Uh, oh, man, so many beatings, but a lot of learnings. And yeah. um, uh, so I, that right as we were selling the company, um, one of the companies that I had been advising uh, was a company called Branch Metrics. And, you know, I started working with them when it was four people and a you know, photo book app uh, company. I mean, it was, they didn't really have anything at that point. And um, they uh, they built this really cool technology and I was kind of helping out and I had introduced them to their seed investors and they got seed funded. And so when the A happened, NEA was leading the A and um, AngelList had just started with this new syndicate product. And yeah. um, I was like, hey, do you guys mind if I try this new syndicate thing and put a part of the A up? And they were like, yeah, go for it. Have fun. Yeah. Go kill yourself. Um, so I wrote a little memo about why I thought Branch would be a multi-billion dollar business. And um, I sent it out to all my friends. And 24 hours later, we'd filled the 200K allocation. And I'm like, whoa, look at that. I'm an investor yeah. now. I, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, it was... I, <laughs> To, to, to say that I had no idea was an understatement. I was this, literally the first venture investment I'd ever made. I'd never angel invested. I'd never done anything in the venture community besides ship deal flow over to my VC friends. And But I was an entrepreneur. Yeah. And then that year where I sort of licked my wounds and wandered around like a wet lost puppy trying to find what to do with my <laughs> life. And I thought I would start another company. Um, uh, I did some more deals. I went on a big vacation, but then got lucky. The next deal I did was cruise. So when the cruise exit happened a year later, everyone suddenly thought I knew what I was doing, which yeah. I didn't, but that's okay. And yeah. uh, my, my VC buddies were like, dude, you're so lucky to get an exit that early. And, and now in retrospect, I'm like, oh my God, I must have paid <laughs> the karma gods. Cause um, yeah, so that started the whole journey. Suddenly everyone thought I knew what I was doing. Capital sloshed over in a big way. And then, you know, any idiot with a checkbook for the last, well, not, not recently, but that for that period from kind of like 2010 to 2022 was everyone made money. So like me too, like everybody made money. And so it all, it looked like I knew what I was doing for years and years and years. Um, and it's quite a ride. Yeah. There you go. Long story. So, but, you had a, you had all the you had been accumulating uh, unseen luck throughout your your entrepreneurial journey, and it all all paid <laughs> off big. Your the second the second check you wrote, right? Well, I mean, Branch is now a um, four billion dollar business. I think. Um, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's 
I think that like you look at like, a lot of VCs talk about vintages. They're like, okay, there's like, it's in, it's some way it's picking, but in a lot of ways it's just being in the right period of time when all the big businesses get built. And, you know, that year in 2015, I did Branch, which is a unicorn, Cruise, which is now supposedly worth like $25 billion. We sold it for a billion, but like, and uh, one signal, which is going to be a unicorn soon enough. Um, those are, yeah, three of the five deals I did that year. And that's not because I was all that good. I didn't know what I was doing, but it was just, there was so much good stuff getting started that year. It was just a magical year. And is there any, like, how are you finding these deals? Are there people that you knew or like, you know, cause as, as a, you know, in VC, um, you know, when you talk to LPs, like deal sourcing is a huge question, right? It's just like, there's, there's a body of, or a, theor- a sort of theory around VC, which is that like all of your alpha comes from deal sourcing. So like where, I mean, how, how are you stumbling into these opportunities? Yeah. So it's all just friends. I, don't, I actually yeah. still don't do any deal sourcing at all. Like it's yeah. just people I know. I, I try to like think about it. Like my sort of funnel is um, people I've built long-term relationships with are the sort of a big part of the meat, which is like, you know, Kyle from Cruise. I've tried to hire Kyle for years and years and years, and I knew him since he dropped out of MIT. And like, you know, it was just we would hang out and chat. And and so when he started a company, it was like a no brainer to invest in him. Um, Branch was came from one of my friends who's a PM uh, who was a PM at, at Facebook, who is an investor, and they had built this new ad tech product and they sent it over to me. And so I started helping them out. But I try to kind of like meet these entrepreneurs in the ecosystem be useful in lightweight ways and build as many of these relationships as I possibly can. Um, and that's kind of my constant sort of ecosystem work that I do. And then that just leads to a bunch of direct opportunities through my friends who are starting companies. And then a lot of indirect opportunities where friends of friends are like, Hey, you should check this out or Hey, you should check this out. And you know, I've been in the ecosystem now for 20 years. So I've, I get a lot of deal flow from that, from yeah. those folks. And then there's a really small segment in sort of stuff where I'm actually smart. So ad tech, data, MarTech, you know, anything that touches sort of, you know, um, acquisition. You know, I have some background there, though it's relatively out of date at this point. And so a lot of people send me stuff there. Um, But but yeah, no, I don't. uh, The outbound sourcing is so time consuming and I find it's um, the quality at least for me and the, the, the stage that I play at, the really quality opportunities aren't even, nobody even knows about them. You have to like, you have to get them sent to you. Otherwise you just don't get them for the early stage stuff. Yeah, exactly. There's this concept of like adverse selection bias that VCs mm-hmm. talk about a lot, right? Which is mm-hmm. there, you know, unfortunately there's massive hierarchies of information asymmetry. Maybe not unfortunately. I think it's just a, a natural sort of, amoral right like the, it's just naturally the way that the private markets are organized there's actually hierarchies probably isn't even the right word because none of them are necessarily better or worse than others there's just all these like separated pockets yeah. of information asymmetry yeah. um the, the the great the greatest being silicon valley silicon valley really <laughs> is just like a node of information asymmetry right yeah. like all all of silicon valley is not more than a thousand players um, I don't know if I agree with a thousand. Really? But because you, like you, I think you're right when you said it's not really a hierarchy. Because you think about so, like when I 
hanging out with sort of like Chamath and David Sachs and that group playing poker, right? Like they would, yeah. you would think of them as like apex predators in the Silicon <laughs> Valley hierarchy. They're like, they, yeah. they, they are gods among us little peons. <laughs> and the, the conversations that they have about the opportunities that they see are amazing, right? Like they get, I mean, all the best stuff. And it's like, you just like, you sit there sort of in awe of the coolness of the shit that they see. But they, but they also, I think, because of their position at that sort of apex, they, they get a lot of noise, a ton of noise. And they, yeah. it's hard for them, and in the conversations I've had them, it's become, it's very apparent, it's hard for them to really get out into the authentic little niches of yeah. people that are doing really interesting stuff that nobody knows about yet, because it gets, it gets lost in the noise, because there's so much yeah. noise. And so they have to filter according to long-term relationships, which become relatively dated, or in terms of referrals from other people they've known for a long time, which is leads to a lot of, like, there's a lot of filter error, I think, at that apex. So I think there's real value in some of the smaller, nichier sort of players in the ecosystem. So I would think even even 10,000 sort of nodes out, I think there's really interesting value in, like, sort of the little, the secrets that people get to find in this business. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree with that. I mean, I think that the reason why there's always opportunity to be a startup founder is sort of the same cycle you just explained, but it's just with incumbent companies, right? Like they, yeah. they get into a position of power, but that power really blinds them, A, from seeing the opportunities. Actually, I think more so than seeing the opportunities, it's being able to do anything about it, Yeah. right? Like I think the top executives and all the biggest companies in the world know where opportunities lie in the market. They just can't do anything about it. Like it's like this way too big of a ship. And so there's like this infinite amount of startup opportunity your framework, I, I would say, is the same as like, I think there's always opportunity for new investors to break into the market by being like really genuine and have really good, good uh, ground truth data mm -hmm. Yeah. around yeah. like, hey, like I'm seeing what's happening on college campuses right now. Yeah. And David Sachs is really smart and he knows how to build good businesses, but he's not fully up to date with what's going on with the youth, right? Or what's going yeah. on here, what's going on there. And yeah. I think if you can you can parlay that into being a successful investor if you wanted to. Yeah. I, I think it's like, I, I spend a lot of time with sort of because of my angelist work, I spend a lot of time with really early stage emerging managers who are just kind of getting their feet off the ground. And, yeah. you know, a lot of them um, will come in with this, like, Hey, you know, how do I be like them? And I'm like, don't be like them. <laughs> be like you, like go figure yeah. out the things that you have that are unique because you are on the ground in like, like for instance, like when I first moved to Silicon Valley, like um, there was a poker game that the YC founders would have. And it was the founders of Dropbox, the founders of Airbnb, the founders of Uber, the founders of um, like all these, I mean, you know, hundreds of billions yeah, yeah. of dollars of market value. But back then it was nothing. The VCs didn't care about us because we were all playing in these tiny little TAMs and we were like, we had weird businesses who were doing weird things. And we, there was no signal that that group was going to become what it became and no one knew. Yeah. So we didn't even know how amazing it was. We'd all played quarter 50 cent poker and we're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and um, I, I, when I talk to these young investors, I'm like, those poker tables, those exist today. 
Like, yeah. and the trick is because of the fact that you're at the ground truth, you're close to the metal, you're going to be the one that smells them and find them first. And so yeah. it's more, less about focusing on how the big players play at the apex and more about thinking about how to play and add value and, and, and intersect at that ground truth. And it's, it's yeah. a different, different game, but it's, there's, that's, that's where all the alpha is. You find that and like, God, if I had been an investor then, fuck. <laughs> Imagine me at that poker game and be like, well, I'll give you 100K, I'll give you whatever. I, here. Yeah. And then, I mean, you'd, God. You'd be on a way better podcast than mine. <laughs> well, I'd have a better studio, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Um, I think that's, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think one thing, and this isn't just for VC, this is just general life advice that anyone who wants to listen to me I, I generally, it's one of my best tips, which is successful people don't need any additional friends. Right. And, yeah, and yeah, there yeah. is, I think there's a lot of times this misplaced focus on, I need to go find all the successful people and network with them. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think a lot of people waste many years of their, of their life trying to figure out like, how do I get in the room with so-and-so? Yeah. It's like, even if you could get into the room with Elon Musk, you're never going to build a genuine relationship with him. Like he's good. Yeah. He doesn't need any more friends. He doesn't need advisors. It's going to be transactional at best. Yeah. But instead to like bet on groups of people who you are peers with now and all of you rise together mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. think about like, and, and build real true genuine relationships. Like it, it's, it's like playing the long game. There's no shortcut to like surrounding yourself with successful people. Yeah. But if you surround yourself with people who you believe will be successful and have the trajectory to do so as you all individually start to become successful, then you have like an extremely power. Think about how powerful like the PayPal mafia is. Yeah. Right. And it's like, yeah. those guys all built that together and they all, you know, went on and did their own things, but those are like true genuine relationships. I know, you know, there's like, I live in Austin. So there's this like, uh, not really a witch hunt but it's like this constant rumor mill of like where's elon living he's here everybody knows he's here but nobody yeah. knows like where exactly he is so like, yeah, 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 everyone's yeah. like on mls trying to figure out uh, wow and the theory has been essentially there's like four or five paypal mafia members who own big houses in austin and the mm-hmm. thesis has been that he's just been like bouncing back bouncing. and forth between yeah. all of them and i'm like that's a really good example of like those guys are close enough friends oh totally to yeah. like yeah. have him stay over at the house and say like, Hey, you can just crash at my place, blah, blah. And so exactly what you said, like where are those poker tables right now? And can you surround yourself with peers who are aspirational and are hardworking and are first principle thinkers uh, and want to do big things. And then you just have to be patient. You just have to like wait for people to actually make it over 10, 15, 20 years. But then you look around and you're like, Holy shit. Like all the people I spend time with <laughs> are incredibly successful and I have yeah. real deep relationships with them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I agree 100%. One of, one of the early sort of formational books in my life, I don't even remember the book it was, but I remember reading it. Um, it was about Bill Clinton and his early years. And he, um, he would meet everyone he'd meet, he would write down their name on everyone he'd meet that he'd like. He'd write down their name on a post-it card or a, a, yeah. a three by five index card. And then he would literally like, like send out to them. Uh, Christmas cards and he would send them notes and he had this huge mailing list of people that he basically was keeping in touch with via like the mail um, and then writing down little notes on these people and he was doing it since he was a kid um, and he built this gigantic database of people that he had had built up over his years and so when he ran his first campaign um, 
what was it? Was it for governor? It was his first role? I think it was. I don't remember. In Arkansas, governor it, of Arkansas, right? Yeah, Arkansas. But I, I know he became governor of Arkansas, but I don't know. But his first campaign, he was able to just raise an incredible amount of money from all these people um, because he already built this amazing mailing list. And then, you know, it, 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 this chapter was talked about how he had built a lot of these networking sort of tools. And so when I was a kid, I was like, oh, that sounds smart. I'm going to do that. And so I started just relentlessly networking, um, doing that, sending postcards. And like now it's all moved to email and the internet, but, um, uh, so powerful, um, the, your yeah. networks are, I mean, literally like if, if I had to like to underwrite a person, I probably would underwrite their network at a higher level than I would underwrite their, um, their intelligence. Like you give me a dumb person with a great network and you give me a smart person with a shit network and I'll take the dumb person, <laughs> but all day long. Yeah. Well, this is like social capital is it's so under discussed, but like it really is how everything happens, right? Like social capital is it's amazing. Arguably yeah. a larger economy than capital capital. I I've, I've read the same. I don't, I can't remember what book it is. I remember reading that same book though. And you know, similarly, I think, I think it's a really powerful lesson too, to talk about like, there's a sort of, I mean, a lot of people who are like focused on the top of the funnel is like get as many business cards as possible mm-hmm. and like say hi, like go to a conference shake Zach's hand, move on. And it's like, I am networking. And the reality is it's like the bottom of the funnel that really matters. It's those, you know, small moments and the follow-ups and the, um, nobody, it's hard to tell too. Like when, yeah, like what, what ended up being like that really amazing point of value. What I try to do is like send articles to people. So yeah, like I'll read stuff and be like, Hey Zach, we talked about this, check it out, blah, blah, blah. And just like be a useful resource for that. And you never know, like, it's always crazy what comes out of that. Yeah. Uh, Cause it's not transactional by definition. You're not doing it with the expectation of anything in return, but what ends up happening is you accumulate all these potential things. There's like the surface area of opportunity grows as you have more people who are like thinking about Tyler. It's like, Hey, I really like that Tyler guy. He sends me these cool articles and like yeah. if something relevant comes up, I'll throw it over and like increasing that surface area of like things that could come back your way. Yeah. I like to think about it. Like, favors that are leveraged. So like whenever I can do something for somebody that adds a tremendous amount of value for them, but requires me to do very little effort, I'm trying to do that as much as I can, which is like, if I can make an introduction to a customer, that's awesome, right? If I can make an introduction to an investor, even better. If I can make an investor, if I can do something that like, doesn't require my work, but require, but that is useful. I'm like, I try to push that out of the ecosystem as much as I can. It's gotten harder to do, like now that like my sort of public persona has increased, now I get a lot more incoming. So I've got a filter and it's a little more difficult to just sort of be as freely giving as I used to be, but it is, yeah. it's the goal. Um, yeah. it's powerful. It just, it just adds so much goodwill in the ecosystem that just keeps coming back in amazing ways. Yeah. Yeah. There's only one Zach. Maybe you should get an EA. Maybe you should think about that. <laughs> well, I don't really need an EA because I don't like, I, I there's a bunch of things about, I can talk about that if you want, but like I, uh, I, I, but I, I haven't really found the, the need for it. I've thought about it a lot, but I've actually thought yeah. about if I should hire a, um, sort of like a, uh, an assistant just for adding value to the network. So I basically like that person's job is to just sit on top of the network, figure out everybody that's in it and then make connections and then basically do what I would do when I spend my time on it, but to do it full time and then just add value via making connections across the network and see if that actually, cause like for my portfolio, for instance, 
you know, their job could be just go, go try to find recruits and customers and just, and I'm like, okay, we need to raise money for this person. Who do they talk to? And they'll have like, yeah. they'll run the CRM and they'll just like do all that shit. Like I'm, yeah. I should do that. Um, I'm, I'm lazy. I don't like labor and it sounds like a little bit of labor to set that up, but, um, <laughs> it, it, uh, I mean, it's a double edge. It's a double edged sword though. Right. Cause like theoretically that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, and just talking to you for 30 minutes though, I think it would be really hard to find someone who has your communication, like the nuance of your communication style and your charisma, et cetera. And so the double-edged sword is like, it could be really frustrating too, because like mm. you can see all the opportunity and you're like yeah. watching someone trip over their shoelaces <laughs> over and over again. And you're like, if only you could just be me, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think you set the bar way a little too high for me, but um, yeah, I, yeah, managing people is not one of my skills. So um, I would, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, well, that's like, yeah, I mean, the, the 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 burden of being like an excellent individual contributor, right? Mm. Which like by definition you are, right? Is I think Apple is very smart in having like individual contributors are a totally different type of employee than managers. It's yeah, a totally different yeah. skill set. It's a different mindset. It's a different temperament. Um mm-hmm. And uh, they 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 hard coded that in. So think, let's yeah. let's go to this, Zach. So you talked about um, you would underwrite a founder based on their network, almost more so than their intelligence. So um, let's segue that. What does great look like to you? Like when a deal comes across your desk, like yeah. what what are some of the characteristics that just stand out to you that that gets you super excited? Yeah, I mean the the number one by far is new. So you think about it like new. New, new. So um, you can think about it like Bayesian statistics, which is, you know, the base set becomes more powerful than the underlying individual prediction on a particular event. And so in the case of companies, you know, if you come to me and you're like, hey, I've got the X, Y, Z that's better than everybody else. Like in order to, to correctly predict that sort of underwriting opportunity, you have to understand the base set, which is that you really have to deeply understand all the other companies in the ecosystem, why they're good, why they're bad, why the customers prefer them. And that very quickly basically leads to the best analysts being the best in that sort of game. And so when you get yeah. to sort of a particular stage in an ecosystem, in a business sector, the analysts always win. Um, whereas... And do you think that stage is like Series A? I don't necessarily think it's just Series A. Generally, Series A is where that starts to occur because you okay. you start to see good founders see other founders. They all kind of arrive at the same place at a similar point in time. They all start building yeah. stuff, and then it becomes this like you know rapid progression process. And then what happens is once you have a sector, then you have sector specialists and people who are smart in the sector specialists. So if you're a founder who can actually build something better, you can reach out to those people, show them what you have, and then they'll help get, help get you funded. And so the sector itself becomes self-perpetuating as a result of that sort of accumulated knowledge that exists within the ecosystem players. Um, gotcha. And so it's, yeah, Series A is where the, the best, but even like, like for instance, in ad tech, you know, there's there's a group of us who spend a lot of time investing in ad tech or looking at stuff in ad tech. It's a super hard sector right now, but like, um, God, you've got to be so far advanced to get funded in ad tech these days. Like, I mean, the, me, I would I would have been laughed out of the room if I had showed up and tried to raise money in ad tech uh, when I first started. But back then, nobody knew anything, right? There was no base set. It was all brand fucking new. And so that's what I look for. It's like, 
stuff that doesn't have a base set where it's like, I don't have to be the smartest person in the room on the sector because there's no fucking sector. Like, I yeah. don't have to be basically the smartest person in the room about, you know, anything. I can just basically evaluate something for what it was, which is this brand new opportunity that is, and that's hard. Like it's, because yeah. there's, I mean, it's just, there's so much, especially now where it feels like we're kind of late in sort of this, this web two cycle and a lot of the energy is going to web three and you know, mobile is super late in the mobile cycle. It's, there's just, it's hard to see new stuff. And so, um, that's what I spent all my time looking for just new. Um, and, uh, and that's where, that's where greatness comes from in, for me anyway, is it like, you know, uh, the new stuff is, that's the, the exciting stuff. I think, well, I mean, hopefully, there's a potential for like a renaissance of new, right? Like we're pretty late. We're pretty late in a lot of the last 10 year cycles, like the innovations, mobile, right? Right. Like mm-hmm. mobile internet speed and access. Um, most of the innovation we've had over the last 10 years have really been built on those two innovations. And then you, 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 you marry that with like QE policy, which is just creating this like massive tailwind to say like, don't risk too much innovation, like just yeah. distribute all yeah. the different ways this technology can actually work. And everyone just like jumped on that boat and like, you know, drank beer. Um, <laughs> yeah. We partied, we partied hard like, so, for those years. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but now we're, so like two things are happening. One is like, we're reaching. So to your, I like the framework you had, right? Like a lot of the, a lot of the areas are like so saturated that it's like, here, perfect example, right? This is like the number one topic on Twitter right now. Adam Newman, right? yeah, yeah, Andreessen, exactly. right? That's yeah. a perfect example of what you just described, which is like, look, the the right guy walked in and said, hey, I want to build another real estate company. And they were like, yep, that's it, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we don't really care if people disagree with us because like we know that it takes an absolute psychopath to build a real estate and like, we know he's an absolute psychopath. And like yeah. the thing that's not discussed is like, I think for sure part of that, whatever it is, $350 million. I'm sure Anderson has all of the ratchets and protections they need that weren't there originally with benchmark to like, try to keep him on the rails. Right. Yeah. So they're like, we're going to try to like tame this beast. Um, but as we reach the end of these cycles and then the tailwinds are ending, right? Like we're going into like a post QE mm-hmm. world. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, if it's going to cost as much to distribute existing technology as it is to invent new technology, it's going to push a lot of people over to like focusing on inventing new underlying technology. And I'm really excited that like we could get to live through another huge wave of like big innovations so like yeah. if we keep our shit together right like if we if we stop getting so distracted by things that don't really matter that much and and like actually focus uh i think there could be a a pretty bit i mean space to me is incredibly exciting like to, to truly unlock access to space like opens up a, a, a to like yeah it's not a, i don't even think it's fair to say it's like a new vector of growth like it's an entirely new paradigm of growth yeah um yeah in AI and what's happening in biotech and robotics and, you know, all of that. Um, I mean, there's a, one of the things I think about, so I'm like, Caroline, how far are we from, we're like 10 blocks from UT's campus and 
in the middle of the quad. So UT has many quads, but right in the middle of like one of the main quads, there's like a cafeteria mm-hmm. is the physics building. And if you go seven stories down into the ground of the physics building, I bet most students at UT don't know this. <laughs> the largest operational laser in the Northern hemisphere is buried under the quad. Oh, wow. Cool. And it can, it can fire a one petawatt laser beam. Wow. Which that's a lot. The, the physicist, I was like, uh, that sounds like a lot. How much is a petawatt? He was like, a petawatt is more electricity than the entire United States uses in a year. Like the entire consumer, all households in the United States wow. don't use yeah. a petawatt. If wow. if that if someone's listening and that's not accurate, blame the <laughs> physicist. Don't blame Tyler. <laughs> Let you know. But suffice it to say a metric shit ton of electricity. So like there's yeah. a separate room and that room is just capacitors and it takes like two weeks for the capacitors to, to build store it up. up. Oh, to build it up and then it fires and it's like this like tiny little uh like it's like less than a millisecond burst of uh laser beam yeah and then it like hits they like have a puff of helium gas and that laser beam hits the helium gas and it creates plasma and off that plasma they can accelerate particles okay and the thinking is they can get that they want to get that technology down to like 10 by 10 square meters okay and the thinking is like right now research based on particle acceleration is really constrained by like CERN, right? Like it's this massive thing. We can't build a lot of those. People are waiting in line for years and years and years. If we could give every university campus the ability to accelerate particles, imagine how much faster we would be learning. And it's like, you start to think about stuff like that and the unlocks that could potentially come. I mean, physics particularly is incredibly exciting. It's like the last huge innovation we had, like the last groundbreaking innovation we had in physics was nuclear weapons. And then it like probably rightly so scared everybody away from, uh, atomic research or at least like applications of atomic research. <laughs> um, there hasn't really been a whole lot of underlying innovation that's happened in atoms since then. Yeah. I mean, you can argue that the fission work that they're doing is, is, you know, getting closer. I mean, but that's, that, that is happening, but I'm saying like in applications that like affect people's day-to-day lives, like I mean, the theoretical vision. research. If they happening. solve that. Well, like, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah that's game yeah, over. We become a, we like skit. Yeah. I mean, if, if we solve that, like we become a level two civilization overnight, whether or not we can handle that is. <laughs> oh my God. Different question. Uh, uh, I mean, so uh, we could, yeah, we could, this could turn into a sci-fi podcast real fast. Just thinking about that. Um, yeah, I was talking to Guyan from Surface Ventures, um, really, really smart guy, and we were talking about um, quantum oh, computing. Wow, yeah. We got into this whole, we got into this whole conversation about how like World War Three, we're in the middle of World War Three, but the theater of war is the internet, and the nuclear arms race is basically like pre-quantum, post-quantum cryptography. Yeah, and that there's going to be this new power axis. Um, the same that we have of nuclear powers and non-nuclear powers of quantum and non-quantum countries and pre-quantum countries, all of their secret information is going to be completely exposed to quantum post-quantum. I thought I saw somebody just posted that there's a, there's a solve um, for that. I didn't, I'm not an expert in quantum, but, but I had, I had read that there's a, some new innovation in solving for it would be interesting if like quantum is what like, you know, the, the canon of Dune, right. Is that like, they like banned AI and they just went back to analog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that like 
the solution to quantum is like we're just gonna hide our secrets in like Indiana Jones style temples. <laughs> like we're gonna like go back to scrolls and just put things in temples with poison darts that shoots out of the wall. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so so let's to get back on topic. So the question was, what does great look like to you? Mm-hmm. So number yeah. one, really excited about like new novel, um, yeah. like spaces where. Like you said, the base case is not really defined. Mm-hmm. Um, anything particular about the founders? Um, for me, founders are very much uh, a pattern recognition thing that in a lot of cases is very intuitive. Um, and they're all very different. Like if you look across the group of founders that I work with, they're... There's some similarities, but a lot of them are very, um, they're very unique in, I accept a lot of warts in that I'm, I'm not looking for perfection. I'm, I'm looking for, um, unique people. Um, yeah. uh, one, one area that I, that I, that, that works well for me, is from a tactical perspective in my interaction with founders is that I, I try very early on to challenge them with candid feedback aggressive candid feedback, like to the point of saying, Oh, that seems stupid. Or why are you doing that? That makes no sense. Or what? Like, or arguing with them very early on in in the conversation, because there's, there's a group of people who do well with that interaction style, which is my modality. And, and we, we mesh well together and, you know, they're like, Oh, and they, they can argue back and they can have discussions about, you know, why they do things the way they do. And there's other groups of people who don't do well with that, who are not my people. Um, so in a lot of ways it's filtering for my people versus people that, that don't, wouldn't do well with my style. And it's funny, there's some founders who, um, uh, started out as my kind of people and then they became challenged by the way I interact <laughs> and now they really don't like that. And that's just kind of nice because they just don't call me anymore. So I don't have to worry about like wasting my time on them and they don't waste their time on me. And like we have this nice little uh, synergy there. But um, yeah, it's uh, too, too much, Zach. Too much. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm, I'm very candid. I will be I, I just will always tell them exactly what I think. And, and sometimes that will involve me being aggressive by telling them that I think what they're doing is dumb. Um, and some people like that, some people don't like, that's okay. And are you, I mean, in that interaction, right? Like, are you okay if a founder says like, I hear you Zach, uh, but like, let's agree to disagree. Like I'll, sure. we'll, we'll loop back in six months and we'll see who's right. Right. Like, like yeah. I think that's what you're kind of testing for is like, can you handle me disagreeing with you and still staying committed to, what you thought was right. And then just like quantifying it and moving on. Yeah. I mean, the thing I will always say is like, look, take this with a giant fistful of salt. First of all, you're 10 times closer to the metal than I am. You know more than I do. Second of all, like I've spent zero time on this and you've spent all this time on it. And third of all, I'm an idiot all the time and make mistakes. So like, just assume that I'm just being an idiot. And that's probably the right base case. Like the base case is Zach just being dumb. And that's <laughs> generally the case. So like, if you assume all those things, then here's this candid feedback that you can take and then we can discuss and you can tell me why I'm wrong. That's totally cool. And if you prove me wrong, great. And if I'm right, well, then maybe next time you listen to me because I do bring <laughs> context and sort of information and experiences different than yours. And they need to fit that into their mosaic of decision making. Um, and But they need to, the best founders, as far as I'm concerned, are the ones that are most open to listening to the world around them. Like it's funny when I was a founder, when we sold the company, the day that the company exited, I remember it 
to the T, it was literally like this curtain that had been surrounding me that this world had been projected upon that I thought was the real world suddenly fell. And I saw the world around me as it, I don't even know if this was just a different curtain, but I saw the world around me as it was. And it was not the same as the curtain that I had been living in as a founder. Because as a founder, you spend so much time and energy focused on this one thing. And as a result of that focus, you become very myopic. And your yeah. your brain starts to change the inputs in order to fulfill your needs for consistency and your biases and all the shit that humans have wrong with us. But like the day yeah. that that curtain fell for me, I was like, oh my God, all these decisions that I had made had been built on this world that had been projected upon my sort of myopic curtain. And when I realized how fucked up some of the shit I had done was um, in terms of strategic decisions, I was like, oh God. Um, <laughs> and so part of my job as a founder is to, or is a, as a, when I work with my founders, is to help them peel back their curtain a little bit and to see through that and to see the world in a different way. And the best founders yeah. are the ones who do a really good job of doing that. I'd like to say that my favorite founders are the ones who are dumb enough to basically be willing to jam their head through brick walls, but who are also smart enough to sometimes realize that sometimes you can walk around the wall. And like those are two yeah. very different sort of brain spaces and you kind of have to be able to have it both to be a successful founder. Um, yeah. Tricky problem. Yeah. It's like horsepower and steering. Right. <clears throat> but I mean, you think about like Travis, right? So like when I first met Travis, Travis and Uber, um, he ju they had just started Uber. It hadn't even really been an idea. And we're like on this, uh, this deck and it's like people are having beers and, and we, he and I got in this giant argument about whether or not it would work or not. And of course me being dumb, I'm like, it's not going to work. The taxi union is really strong. They're going to fuck you. And he's like, I'm a fighter. I will fucking kill them. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, God, I like this guy. Like, and I wasn't investing yeah. then. So I don't know if I would have invested, but like, I was like, this guy is my guy. And and you look at the life of, of, of Uber and both his greatest strength became his greatest weakness and caused a lot of the problems that he had. But Uber never would have made it without Travis. Like no. Travis, like, no, I he, agree. he it just, I forced yeah, I mean, his personality. A, yeah. And he was able to mobilize like an entire company full of highly intelligent people to also believe that it could be done. But I agree yeah. with you. I think the day when Uber stopped fighting regulators, mm -hmm. Is was when time. his demise is his demise is like he was a wartime leader, and as soon as the war ended, they needed to bring somebody in who could like stabilize the company, and like you know his war energy just started being aimed at like more and more obscure things, right? Yeah. Sort of like it became very like Don Quixote. <laughs> like I don't know if I'd say that. I, uh, we get. I'm not a. I'm not a, a an expert in the Uber, all the Uber intricacies, and like. Um, yeah, and it's a debate. I'm not. I'm not the right guy to have, but I'm not sure he became Dom Quixote. I, I, yeah, I, not. I, I'm I, not, clear to me. not. Not. In, not from a character perspective, right? Yeah. So I'll, I'll correct myself. I have. I have the utmost respect for him, but meaning that like his his energy and everything that he brought to fighting the regulators, there wasn't really any war to be fought anymore, right? It was about. I don't know if I agree with that. I, I think. Really? I think his vision was so big that there was a lot more war to be fought. But I think a lot of people were, were, were happy with the gains that they had accomplished and they wanted the okay, war. So you to think end. it was like, basically the other stakeholders were like, we're, we can't play this game anymore. They, they, like, they wanted anyway. to go public and you, it's very difficult to basically go public and sort of exist in a sort of in that ecosystem 
fighting and playing the way that Travis had played. Like, yeah, he, that's fair. He, cause he no, really did. He doesn't give a shit about what people think is right. He just cares about like outcomes yeah. and a lot of things that he did got outcomes and they, you know, in a lot of cases they were like, they were made up sort of like, why are we doing this? Cause somebody said it was right. Like, but, and, and he just like, fuck it, let's go. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, you're right. I guess that is a better perspective than what I, what I said. Originally. I don't know if it's better. It's just, that's my perspective. I, but yeah, but I, I tend to agree with you. I hadn't really thought about like, you just didn't have the buy-in from all the stakeholders to like keep fighting that fight. Yeah. The, um, money, the money was too big. It was too much money. Like it was like, yeah. And, and think about it. I mean, I mean your, that was, your benchmark or your first round or any of those VC firms. And you're like, you're watching the chaos and risk of him going for the next big ring. And you're like, hold on a second. How much money are we sitting on? Yeah. We're, no, we're not gambling yeah, exactly. anymore. It's like you want your Fabergé egg and you want to retire. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one last question on, on so new and then, you know, I think <clears throat> more of a qualitative explanation, but, um, you know, char- character from the founders, right? And, you know, we, we dabbled a little bit about, you know, the founders being able to um, make decisions and sort of argue with you. One of the things that you, you touched on is like, you kind of do that test to see like, are these my people or not? And what's really like one of the common out. So this is the seventh episode of the deal I've recorded every single founder or every single investor. Everybody has very different methodologies and paradigms that they look at deals through. So everybody has different answers to the questions. Every single person though arrives at ultimately what I'm looking for are people that I really get along with and that I like that I like working with. And so I think there's this like really interesting trend that like is not being discussed at all. I mean, I work with founders all the time about raising funds. I see, people writing articles about raising funds and this and that. And the one thing I never see being discussed is like founder investor fit, Mm -hmm. which is like you have a company and right now the best in class advice is like build a list of 300 investors, get warm intros, go out and reach out to all of them and try to find it's like, wait a minute, like how much work are you putting in? Is Zach even somebody you would want on your cap table? Right. Like, is he your guy? Is he someone that you want to work with? Is he someone that you're going to get along with? Is he someone that like you want to be a part of this journey? Um, and I think there's like a compounding effect to that because if I'm a founder and I reach out to you and it's like, obviously you're 149 in a 150 investor list that I just sent the same email out. And I think founders like underestimate how easy that is to see. Yeah. Um, you get that and it's like, you're not going to respond a hundred percent. You're not going to, it would have to be so damn lucky of exactly what you're thinking about right that day for you to respond Mm -hmm. versus if somebody were to write you and say like, Hey Zach, I heard you on Tyler's podcast. I heard you talking about X, Y, Z. I really agree. Um, blah, blah, blah. And there's like real context and like real thought as to like, I'm writing you because I want you on my cap table. I'm not writing you because I know you have money. Yeah. It's a game changer. And for founders, it's like, well, you know, I don't want to do all that work, blah, blah. And it's like, I guarantee you it's less work than going through and eating shit for 300 (laughs) investor calls and getting, you know, 299 no's to get that one. Yes. If you just do a little bit of upfront work to like reach out to people with real context with a real reason why you want them. And like, hell, like you, you add in a little psychology to your favor, which is like 
there's some context there, right? Like it's becoming for me to write an email to you and say like, Hey Zach, I like you, right? Like, I think you're smart. I like the way you think about MarTech. I would really like for you to be on my cap table. It's like, that's going to play in your favor. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I'm, I'm looking through my list of, of, of investments right now and almost all of them I knew before I invested in them. Like I got to know them over some interaction at some period of time. Sometimes I've done them more and sometimes I've done them less, but, but like, like there's very, very few of the 60 companies that I've invested in who are like, I met them, I invested in them. Um, yeah. And, and like a good example is um, I invested in this company called Eventany, E-V-E-N-T-E-N-Y. And the founder had actually reached out to me um, a couple of years before, and she had this situation and she wanted my advice. And it was not a made up situation and it wasn't advice she could get off of the internet. That's one mistake that founders make because they email me something that they could go find on fucking Google. And like, they're like, hi, how do I do this? And I'm like, fuck you. Like, like, I, like go fuck yourself. Like, show me more respect. Than that. But, but she's like, hey, I had this investor and they want to do this. And it was like, and you know, I love founders. I mean, I literally like, like, I tear up when I see them fail. Like I, I, I feel great when I see them succeed. Like founders to me are my people because I understand the, the incredible brutality of the job. And so she had this very real question and I responded. I was like, oh, here's what I think. And then, you know, six months later, she had another real question. And I was like, oh, here's what I think. And so we built this relationship over a couple of years and her company was not doing very well. It was super tiny. It was her and her husband. Like, like there was nothing there. Cool, whatever, I don't care. I'm happy to provide value that is really valuable to her that costs me nothing more than a few keystrokes. Fast forward a couple of years, they found product market fit, it started to work. They reached out, they had a funding raising round. They're like, hey, what do you think about this? And I was like, hey, I wanna look at this. This looks cool. Got involved and invested. And, um, and that relationship took a few years to build and it started with, I mean, it was a cold LinkedIn message she sent me and it kind of built through that process. But um, yeah, I think what you said is absolutely dead on. It's relationships are so important in this business. And if you can build a relationship with a, with an investor, it just makes, it just literally greases the, the, the rails for, for everything that comes after it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like all of the social biases that humans have are incorporated into this whole thing and you can use them to your advantage. I think a lot of founders actually, not only do they not use that, to their advantage, they, they actually play it wrong, right? They like create a barrier for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. They like, they, they, um, they create negative reactions, right? They trigger like people to put their guard up and say like, why are you reaching out to me? Yeah. Right. Cause so for example, like it's like, you could have found that on Google. So automatically my psychological barrier is up because I know that's not actually what you want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like my red flags are going off is you have some ulterior motive. Yeah. Um, it's also just disrespectful. It's like, yeah, like I think I think the thing that that it's important to do is put yourself in the other person's shoes and like you know when you give away free money as an investor in exchange for pieces of paper like literally like the person can write some shit on a piece of paper and hand it to me and I will hand them five million dollars. What does that mean? It means that there are lots and lots of people who are trying to do that all day long. Like literally, my inbox is full of people who want to give me their pieces of paper in exchange for millions of dollars. And so therefore, yeah. like you have to. As a founder, you have to operationalize in the headspace of what would it be like to have that and all of the shit that comes with that. And how do you navigate through that process from both directions to find a good thing? Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, but like, I think 
as if you see like you're carrying a burden that's not uh, discussed very often, right? Which is like founder, if a founder fails, right? Like, and this is one of the really beautiful parts of, especially the ecosystem in the US, it's celebrated, right? Like those scars can actually be parlayed into another success. Sure. The same is not true as an investor. Like if you blow up your first fund, you're out of the game. Like you're not parlaying that yeah. into a second fund. It's like, oh my gosh, Zach's back and he's going to make another fund. It's like, nah, you're done. No, fund three is my winner, um, bro. Fund three is my winner. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I said fund two is my winner, but fund three is going to be my winner. Yeah, um, the LPs, they got no time. And, and Even yeah. your first investments, like you make, you make shit investments and they're like, yeah, go fuck yourself. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think there's this misconception that it's like, oh, VCs are just like out here sitting on mounds of money, throwing it wherever <laughs> they want. It's like, yes, if you only listen to what people choose to talk about on Twitter. But the reality is there's like a tremendous amount of responsibility and pressure that comes on the back end of that, which is like, this is all other people's money. Yeah, yeah. And those other people are huge arbiters in where the money flows. And if you fuck that up, that opportunity that you got, like you're out of the game, you got to go find something else to do. And there's no more, like, where do we go? Right? Like, so like we, we either go take a corporate job, which like I'd rather uh, not, uh, or we go be a founder again, which is like, Oh God, the brutality of being a founder again. But there's no like, like little lateral movement as a VC to go be like, a different VC. It's like you're either you're either in the seat or you are gone. And I'd like to stay in my seat. Yeah, like you've I said, chosen, the beach is good. I'm staying here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you but that's the thing. It's like you have walked into an arena and there's only two ways out of that arena. Dead or a winner. Yes. <laughs> so there's no escape. Um so Zach, last question for you. Uh so I'll ask two questions because sometimes the second one is like two much to think about off the, the jump. What is something you're really excited about in the next 10 years? Or like the harder version of this question is what's something you think is going to happen in the next 10 years that most people are not aware of? Like, what do you think is brewing beneath the surface that you think is like kind of going to take people sort of by storm or by surprise? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm very much a techno optimist in that I look at the sort of curves of technology and believe that we will continue to see exponential advancement in across all the different vectors. So like, you know, for instance, like, you know, we freak out about and justifiably so we freak out about energy. But if you look at basically the solar curve, it's amazing, right? The solar, I mean, literally the cost of producing solar is going down incredibly rapidly. And the only thing why it's not going down even faster is that the fucking government continues to basically slow down the process with stupid inspections and permitting and like just moronic shit that they put in the way of us solving our energy problems. Like it's just like, yeah. it's, it, oh God, it makes me mad. Um, <laughs> but like if you look at the actual science and the actual manufacturing learning curve, it's just like, and if you look at, you know, storage, energy storage, it's like, like we have so yeah. many different shots on goal there and one of them it's going to work. And if you look yeah. at self-driving cars, so over a million people a year drive from other humans being stupid and driving into them and killing them with a car. Every year, a million people around the world die from fucking human stupidity. And self-driving cars are a problem that we are going to solve and that's going to be a million unnecessary, brutal, horrible deaths. Not to mention it solves much energy problems, not to mention it solves much community problems. It's like good for the world. 
And so like you can yeah. go down that list and some of them are really good energy, self-driven cars. Some of them are terrifying. Like VR will become so real that it will feel, look, smell, and our brains will think it's real. And when you add ML into that and you plug into that computer and your brain's like, oh, I like that. ML's like, oh, once more. And like that loop like <laughs> is super powerful. And you think about what will happen when humanity goes into VR and VR porn and VR Super Bowls and VR whatever, and yeah. they never come out again. Like, oh my God. It's like Cypher, Cypher from the Matrix where he like gave up Neo to go back in. Yeah. He's like, this sucks. Yeah. I'm, I'm going back in. Yeah. Like, make me rich. I'm going back in. This the, sucks. I don't want to live in the real world. The Matrix doesn't start because the machines fucking win a war. The Matrix yeah, starts because we're like, like we build it ourselves. Give me some of that. <laughs> and the problem yeah. is, is that like between AI and ML and VR, like it's going to be so fucking good. You're just going to be like, give me more. And yeah. Uh, that's crazy. Um, you know, uh, so uh, I'm Sam, very interested uh, in all these different vectors. Like the next 10 years are going to be fucking crazy because it, because the technology curves are curves. They're not, everyone, everyone kind of thinks about them like sort of step functions, but they're not actually step functions. They're curves that result in step functions. And so like, and this, the curves are, they're already taken off and they're already going and there's nothing going to stop them. Uh, so it's or nothing, not knock on wood. Hopefully we don't do anything stupid like nuclear war. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super bullish about where the technology is going to go. I'm a little more scared about what humans are going to do to fuck up the process, but like the technologies it's going, can't stop it now. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Sam Lesson, uh, he's a yeah, I know Sam. writer. He writes those like black pages. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Sam's awesome. He's so smart. I think two 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 days ago he was talking about um, social media moving from promoting in life, promoting real life interactions as the main modality, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, relationships, sex, blah blah blah. Like yeah. Facebook was successful mostly because of dating on college campuses. And how it's slowly transitioned over to purely entertainment. So TikTok is like, TikTok doesn't really promote any real interactions happening in in real life. It's purely entertainment. And his thesis is that the reason that it switched over is because entertainment is so much easier to measure. Like it's really hard to measure how Facebook creates real life interactions outside of Facebook. You can't quantify that very well. And so it's hard to build management systems uh, et cetera around that. Yeah. And so his thesis was that like everything shifted over to entertainment because like eyeballs engagement, how much time people spend on here was so much easier to measure. It's yeah. sort of that yeah. same thing of like people, people will opt into the matrix cause it's like entertainment. Like our brains have such yep. Yep. a fast feedback loop to entertainment. Mm-hmm. And like, because it was so rare, right? You think about a hundred years ago, how much entertainment did the average person have? Like maybe 10 hours their entire life. Yeah, like yeah. entertainment was like such a special thing, such like you think about the concept of like a court jester, yeah, right? Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. like, that was the pinnacle of luxury is like having somebody juggle. For you. <laughs> and now we can like sit on our phones and just watch like every single thing at, at 100 volume all the time, all day. Long. It's funny. One of my friends who's a, um, a senior Facebook person, uh, he, he told me that um, a number of years ago, Facebook changed the algorithm uh, to really focus on engagement. So they were like, okay, what, what, what are people engaging in? Let's, let's, let's give them more of that. And what they found is that a lot of the shit content that now is in the feed uh, that we see on Facebook is the highly engaging content. 
And the problem that they didn't realize until many years later was that because they weren't measuring all of the impacts of less engaging content, but that led to offline engagements. So when you see your friend's baby picture, you actually just pick up the phone and call them and you're like, hey, oh my God, that's so cool. Like, um, because they had, like you were saying, they don't have all these management tools. They, they actually really significantly broke Facebook as the tool that drove all this offline value for their user base. And the yeah. user base then was like, they just didn't see the value anymore and they just slowly slipped away. Um, yeah. and, um, he, he argues that, that, that that's actually like one of the reasons why Facebook broke so bad over the last five years, yeah. um, which, you know, for all of us who use Facebook, we're like, Oh, that makes sense. Um, that's yeah, right. Cause like Facebook used to be, it's like, you keep it updated for all the people that, you know, it was like a directory. Yeah, yeah. And now it's like this like cesspool of us. Like I was like, yeah. just, I don't want strangers to have access to all my stuff and yeah. to be fed all this information. Yeah. It was like the same thing, essentially like because it was so hard to measure offline interactions, slowly but surely people just like measured and optimized and like built incentive and management systems about like, well, what can we measure? Just eyeballs. Um, but <clears throat> that's not necessarily attached to like the offline value. Yeah. Yeah. And, but the, the end total of the holistic value that a user gets from the product, especially in the case of Facebook is a lot of it is offline. It's uh, do you think that there is like a social media 2.0? Oh, of course. Coming. Yeah. Do you like what do you think the vector like what do you think the key no idea. principles are? I, yeah, that, I'm not an analyst, right? So there are people who Starting, like so yeah. like my friends who are like super smart about this stuff. Like, you know, Sri Ram over at uh, Andreessen just wrote this really cool post about this. Um uh he about social capital and thinking about social capital and like I mean guy's brilliant he spent a lot of time thinking about these problems and um like he's the person to ask about that uh, uh, uh eugene we we why uh writes amazing stuff about this there's all these analysts right who are just like brilliant about this stuff and they think deeply about yeah. it and like they will always win in a space like this whereas like you know if you show up like with something new it doesn't fit in their rubric they often yeah. struggle with that, whereas I just like, ooh, new, and I get really excited about new shit. And, <laughs> um, and that's where I spend my time. So I don't know what social media 2.0 looks like. I don't even, like, that's the new. I can't even know. It's impossible to know. It has to be new. But yeah. there's something yeah. that will happen. But what will it be? So I don't if you're know. building something new, if you're building something truly new, send Zach an email. When people, when you talk to people, if you're like, I don't get it, that's yeah. when it might get interesting for me. But, um, yeah. You know. I like uh, Josh Wolf talks about wait what is part yeah. of their investment criteria yeah. and he write I love that it was like wait a minute say that again yeah exactly um, yeah. those are exciting moments yeah. yeah Josh is Josh is brilliant he's he's very good at he's very good at communicating how he does his work I'm very impressed with like how well he's able to like to spread the narrative um, like he's it's like he's just sure. a fucking pro at that for sure well Zach this has been awesome we're at an hour good talking about by easy. I really appreciate uh, you coming on and spending time with me, sharing these thoughts. Lots of great nuggets here. Um, and that's it. Thanks a lot, man. Easy peasy. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. It's Tyler again. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more about how you can build a company that's backed by venture capital, we'd love to talk to you about our founder studios all around the world. 
more information on that, visit www.antler.co. We'll see you next time.